0: and of course, we'd love to have you drop in anytime for a visit to learn and worship along with us. And now, here's our teaching for this week. For those of you that are guests today, my name's Britt. I'm the lead pastor. And uh, so welcome, Sunridge. Welcome, guests. We're really glad that you're here with us today, and I have a special treat for you. Oops, sorry about that. <laughs> they snuck up behind me. Uh, When I started uh, thinking about the series that we're closing out today, Exponential, where we're just talking about, you know, the things that seem inconsequential to us and how much potential is in them if God is in it, I started thinking about uh, a value that we've had since since I've been a part of Sunridge, which is that we major on the minors. And it doesn't mean that we get into the weeds on things that don't matter. It means that children and students matter a lot to us here. At Sunridge. We made a huge investment over the years. It is one of the ways that this church, for over 30 years, has been exponential in this valley. And we have affected so many kids and uh, students that have gone on in ministry or in business and are like they're carrying the message of the gospel forward. And when I started thinking about that, I thought about our speaker today, Daniel Watts. Um, he is uh, the founder of Every Generation Ministries. Uh, he, I'm assuming he's gonna tell you a little bit about that. I don't wanna steal his thunder, but it, it's an international ministry that has ministered to so many churches, probably thousands of churches, helping them reconstruct, start, or improve their children's uh, ministries. And he's, he's, he's just been so influential um, in his, his lifetime. And um, we just love uh, Daniel and Marla They've been a part of our church in the past. Marla teaches at Linfield School for many, many years, and they are continuing to impact churches and young people today. And I wanted him to share today to tell you about how, how important it is that we make an investment in the generation that is here right now and is going to be the future. Daniel, would you come up? Sunridge, give Daniel Watts a great Sunridge welcome. Thank you.
1: Okay, whenever I speak in a church, I'm always nervous about this because I'm so short, uh, and Brit's so much taller. I preached in a church one time where the pulpit was so high, you could just barely see my head over the top of it. Okay, so this morning when I woke up, um, this was in part of my message, but when I woke up, I was going through my notes, and I've uh, been around the world and preached in a lot of different churches and that sort of thing about children, and I was in a church in Antifagasta, Chile, years ago, and this is a good message for Sunridge this morning. Uh, in Antofagasta, it rains once every 75 years. It's the driest place in the world. <clears throat> and It's where all the copper mining is, and Or there would be no one living there. And I preached in this little church of about 100 people, and because it never rains, they don't have roofs of any note. So this church had like a tin roof over it. And as I got up to preach, two cats fighting jumped on the roof and went at it with the roof shaking, and I'm trying to talk, and there's cats screaming, and... So I just want to say thank you for this beautiful building, and really, you all should be thankful for the facilities you have here. They're just spectacular. When Marlon and I came in, came in today, we were reminded of that. It's really an amazing facility you have here. Well, I have traveled a lot over the years, and a few years ago, uh, we were exploring starting a ministry work in Kazakhstan, and I was uh, quite a bit younger than I am now, and I used to do travel things that you wouldn't normally do. So I had flown several times to Kazakhstan, met with church leaders there, was trying to figure out how we could start a ministry there to help them uh, improve their ministry to children. So they invited me to come back and speak at a children's workers conference in a city called uh, Keragande. So I flew all the way from Poland, where we lived. We lived in Poland for 10 years, and that's where the ministry started. We flew from uh, Kraków, Poland, where I lived, all the way to Almaty, Kazakhstan, and Some church leaders met me and they told me that I was going to fly up to Katagande, but it was super cold out and I might not be able to, I might have to take the train, which they were worried about because they had robbed the train on horseback and robbed all the people on the train and they were really worried about me uh, going on the train. So fortunately, the weather warmed up and I was able to fly there. And when I flew there, I taught at the conference and when it was over, I had to fly back to Almaty. So I was flying on Air Kazakhstan. People told me that was not a good idea, but I didn't listen. You instinctively know not to fly on Air Kazakhstan. But I got on the plane, and it was so backwards. They didn't even do anything in English. It was all in Russian and Kazakh. But I understood, you know, put your tray table up and all that stuff. So they go out on the runway, and they fly down the runway to take off. And as it takes, you know, gets going, accelerating... It starts to turn. You could feel the plane starting to turn and it started to slide and it slid off the runway as it was accelerating. And it was going very fast, of course. And it slid into this field. It's like 10 below zero, frozen. It had been plowed. And then it went like across the old washboard, you know, like and came to a stop. All, all the um, bins had opened up. People were screaming. The flight attendant, it was unbelievable. And it comes to a stop, and everybody, I'm like, you know, oh my gosh. So the guy comes on the pilot and says something about, um, you know, they're going to bring out something, I couldn't understand the Russian very well, a tractor. I'm like, well, that must be the word in Russian for that machine that comes out and takes the front of the plane and drives it away. I look out the window, because you're sideways, it's a real farm tractor. (laughs) And it has like a chain hanging around the um, exhaust thing. (laughs) And you're like, oh my gosh. They came out, they put the thing on. I'm like, I hope we can get back to the gate okay. And he's towing us over the, you know, back onto the runway, back up the runway. And then the guy says, we're going to put your tables in the upright position and they're going to take off. <laughs> so I'm like, I got to get off this plane, man. <laughs> but there's all these Kazakhs and you're not getting off there. And I'm like, oh my gosh. And he took, takes off down the runway and we take off up into the air. And I'm like, oh my gosh. I remember hearing, I have a friend who was in the Air Force. He he told me the reason they do maintenance on planes so carefully is because if a car breaks down, it rolls. If a boat breaks down, it drifts. If a plane breaks down, it falls out of the sky, and everybody dies. (laughs) So I'm in the air thinking, okay, we're going to die when we land, right? Because that's where the real, when you hit the ground, it's over. We're going to belly out, flames, and I'm gone. So it's like a three-hour flight to Almaty. So I'm writing a goodbye to my wife. I'm not kidding you, I I think I still have these somewhere. I wrote her like who to marry (laughs) and what, what to do with the kids. Then I wrote a letter to my son we had adopted what to do with your life, where to go to school, what kind of girl to look for to marry. Then I wrote one to my daughter who was like 10 years old and where she, her whole plan for her life as a dad who was about to die. And Then I found this little niche in my um, briefcase that I thought would survive a fire and I put it inside this leather portfolio, inside that and zipped it up. And because and I thought we're gonna, I'm gonna die when we land. So when we landed in Almate and I got off the plane and walked down the steps, I, you know, kissed the tarmac, you've ever heard that term? I nearly did it right there. I was so happy to be on the ground. When you have a crisis like that, it makes you think about your priorities. What's important to you? And for me, like most of you here, it's the people you love. It's your wife. In my case, it was my wife and my two children. So if you read the New Testament, Jesus has a way of uh, making something into a crisis almost for the purpose of getting his disciples to think about what are the real priorities. And it's frequently the case that what he thinks is exponential ministry, the disciples do not. And so he facilitates, even prompts these sort of crises that causes the disciples to think about what's really important in God's kingdom. And how might my idea of exponential be different than God's? And Matthew 19, in these two verses, 13, four, these three verses, 13, 14, and 15, gives us an example of that, where Jesus is about to show the disciples that their ideas about exponential ministry are wrong, especially regarding children. And he forces them to think that through and respond to his idea of what's exponential. So I want us to look in these three verses, and I want us to look at four groups of people in the passage. So we're going to dig out a lot out of four, three little verses. So the first group that's mentioned in the passage, it says, little children were brought to Jesus. So I want us to think just a bit this morning about little children. The English language uses different words to describe children, a baby, an infant, a toddler. We might call them a child that's an early childhood child, someone's school age and so on. So the Greek language is the same way. And the word that's used here is the Greek word that could be translated toddler. But instead, the NIV translates it, little children were brought to him. So I want you to picture that these little two-year-olds, maybe one-and-a-half to three-year-old kids, like my granddaughter, Ava, are being brought to Jesus... And that's the first group I want us to look at because it's a very large group in our world today. So if you look around the world, about 40%, 40% of the world population is under the age of 15 in our world. A country like India has over 400 million children, which is more than the entire population of the United States. We have ministry work in Uganda. We have ministry work in India too. We have ministry work in Uganda where 60% of the entire population of the country is under the age of 13 in Uganda. Children are an enormous percentage of our population even in highly industrialized and technologically advanced countries like ours. And it's true here in the Temecula Valley. There, is a, there are thousands of children living in this valley. They're in your communities. They're in this church this morning. And most of them around the world and here in our city do not know that Jesus loves them, that he has a purpose for their life, that they can experience the forgiveness of sins that they can experience hope, mercy, joy, and maybe most important of all, they can be part of God's family. Most of those children don't know that. And they're living in darkness away from that truth. And it's a big part of this church. It's a big part of our community. And we need to think about that. Because that group that's so large is so receptive to the message of the Christian faith in my 40 years of working with children all over the world i am certain that there is no group that is more likely to respond to the word of god than boys and girls and we all know that when ch- they're just responsive in general When children hear something, they're convinced it's the truth, then they just go for it. They don't know any better. (laughs) And they're like that all over the world. We started our ministry in Poland. We developed a ministry next door in Belarus. Belarus is a really messed up country. It's uh, W. Bush called it one of the axis of evil countries, and it still is today. The church is persecuted there. Uh, Christian children are persecuted. It's a very bad place to try to live the Christian life. The director of our ministry there just had to send his 24-year-old son and his wife and three children. They held up a sign in a protest in Minsk that said, stop the war. That was it. And he was arrested for it. He and his wife, they were separated from their children they were freed, and they were going to be tried and, and imprisoned for holding up a sign that said, stop the war that's going on right now in the Ukraine. He had to flee and go to Turkey with his wife and three children. That's the environment in Belarus. So a few, a few years ago, uh, churches, they organized summer camps there. It's very difficult because the government doesn't want them to do that, but they manage. And we had a team of high school kids come from Southern California, and they went to that camp in Belarus. It was two weeks long, fantastic ministry. At the end of the camp on Friday night, they had a big bonfire, and this pastor of the church, like Britt, came out to the camp, and he spoke to the kids at the camp. There was about 100 children there. And then he presented the message of salvation to them. And at the end, he invited children to come forward if they wanted to surrender their life to Christ and follow him. Out of those 100 children, 10 of them stood up in that sort of environment. Can you imagine? And walked up to the front where the pastor was and said they wanted to follow Christ. Our group of high school kids from the States was amazed. Then the pastor spent about five minutes talking about, are you sure you want to do that? Because you could get in trouble with your families. You'll get persecuted at school for sure. Your future will be limited because if you're a Christian in Belarus, there's just certain things you can't do. Like go to the university, for example. And he gave this sort of bleak picture of what it would mean to follow Christ in Belarus and asked those 10 children, just looking them right in the eye, are you sure you're ready to confess Christ as your Lord and Savior? The American team was like appalled, shocked, because, you know, that's not the way we present the message here in the United States. And they couldn't believe it. When he got through, they said they were absolutely moved to tears when another 20 kids stood up and walked up to join the 10 that were at the front. And 30 children surrendered their life to Christ in that meeting in Belarus. Because children are the most open and receptive part of our demographic around the world. And Jesus knew that. Second group in the story is the people who were bringing the children. It doesn't say exactly who they were. So I want to say who they weren't, because Matthew doesn't say who they were. Neither does Luke, and neither does Mark. And it's uh, quite uh, informative, I think, to think how we just assume. It does not say that they were parents. It doesn't say they were women. It just says, and they purposely do this, the writers, That it was just people, I'm sure there were parents, I'm sure there were mothers, but it was just people, how he wants to characterize a Matthew is, that thought it was important to bring children into the presence of Christ so that he could put his hands on them, bless them, and minister to them. And I can assure you that there's people in this group all over the world today. In fact, this is my favorite group in the story. I am a member of this group. I love this group. I love this group in your church Tara is one of the members of this group in this church, and there are many more here. And there are people who believe that children need to be brought to Christ so that he can minister to them as they are, and that a child can grow spiritually through their life with Jesus Christ. When we started the ministry in Poland, I went to this Polish pastor in a city that I had wanted to meet him and a few other men there that were leading churches, and I sat down in his office to talk with him, and during the get, kind of get to know you meeting, he looked across the table at me and said, children aren't the future of our church. What, the, what did you just say? I thought he, he must have said it in Polish I didn't understand right. He said that. Children are not the future of our church. Nobody's ever said that to me ever in my life. Nobody, people might think that, but you would never say that to somebody like me, right? I'm looking at him like, what did you just say? And then he said, they're not the future of the church. They're the church right now. I love that pastor. He, he, he said, they're like 25, 30% of my church right now are children. They're not the future. They're part of the church right now. They are the future. But I consider them to be a vital part of my church today. And if you look around at churches today that don't have children in them, they're on the downward spiral, I can guarantee you. And it's not about the future. It's about the church then. It's lifeless. It's lifeless. The second group is people who want to bring children to Christ and see him minister to them, and they're in your church, and they're in this room today. My wife is one of them, teaching at Linfield. So when I got to Kazakhstan on that amazing travel experience, during the conference, there was this lady sitting up in the front, writing down like everything I said, it appeared. Just, you know, for like four or five days. It was amazing. Never said anything to me. Never talked to me. And, of course, they are all speaking Russian or Kazakhs, and I had to have a translator and all that. And uh, so at the end of the conference, the guy, Victor, the running, Victor tells me, hey, we got to get you out of here right after you speak at the end of the conference and go to the airport and get you on the airplane and go. So I have my suitcase. I do the last message of the conference. I'm getting ready to go. And up comes this woman. Her name was Olga. Olga comes up to me, and, you know, after you talk to people for four days like that, and, you're, and they're all writing down everything you say, you know, I hate to say this, but I try to be godly. But, you know, your head gets a little inflated or whatever. It's so sad. She comes up to me, and she says, uh, you know, Pastor Daniel or whatever, I have a 13-year-old son, and I've never shared Christ with him. So I, like, get my pastoral voice, you know, the deeper kind of, well, it's never too late to share... The gospel with anyone, whether they're 89 years old or 13 years old, you know, like the. And then she says, "No, you don't understand. He died." Oh. <laughs> I still remember that feeling. Oh. You go from like the peak of confidence to, boom. If you're a theologically minded person, when somebody tells you their 13-year-old died and they never heard the gospel, and and then she said, where is my son? Britt, you're like, oh, my gosh. And, you know, you're like, go from I know everything to what what am I going to say now? I remember, like, the jet prayer, you know, in Nehemiah. You just pray really quick, God, give me favor with the king. It was God, tell me what to say. She was almost in tears. It was like supercharged, emotional thing. And, you know, one of those times, God be blessed, I felt like the Lord just told me like what to say. It was like two sentences was it. And I sent it to her, sent it to her. She started crying. I prayed for her. And then Victor like grabs me. Let's go. We got to go. So we go out and we go down the hallways and out to the car. And outside there's like 150 children's workers out there singing this song in the snow It's like a goodbye song, and I'm like, oh, my, it's like a Hallmark movie thing or something. And I go over to the car, and there's Olga. I don't know how she, she knew some shortcut or something. She's standing at the car, and she opens the door of the car. I go in and sit down. She looks in the car right before she closes the door and says, now you know why I teach children in my church. Boom, closes the door. I had to drive two hours to the airport and then the fateful Air Kazakhstan incident. But on the way, I had time to think. What she meant was that she didn't want any child to be born and die like her son that didn't have a chance to hear the message of salvation and know Christ as their Lord and Savior. There are people like Olga right here in this church, and they are all over the world, and God bless every one of them. Well, the third group, such a bummer, they are definitely not into the exponential children's ministry concept. It's the disciples. So the disciples decide that it is a bad idea for the children to be brought to Christ. Now, I know the way the NIV translates this, but it's not exactly clear. It says they rebuked Uh, While they rebuked them, it's not clear if they rebuked the children, which is really bad, or the people bringing them, or both. But the point is, they were opposed to children being brought into the presence of the Lord, which is amazing. So the word rebuke, it doesn't quite cover it in the translation, in my view, so the definition that I want to read to you, because I think this gets a better uh, look at it, is to show someone their fault or wrongdoing, to show strong disapproval, to denounce someone. That's what the disciples do. They think it is a bad idea for children to be brought into the presence of Jesus Christ. Amazing. And the question is, why? Why would they have been opposed to that? And let me see, it doesn't make it clear, but let me suggest, I'm going to give you like four ideas, because I think it's like a, it's one of these maybe, or a, a combination of them. So the first one is Jesus is a really famous preacher and sort of charismatic religious leader, and famous people do not spend their time with toddlers, unless it's like a photo op on the political trail maybe. Jesus was really busy and didn't have time for children, little, little children. Jesus was declaring the kingdom of God over our world. And children are not exactly a strategic element of the kingdom of God in this world. And finally, and most likely in my opinion is that if you are going to change the world and redeem the people of God, it's going to come through the exertion of power. And we got to get Jesus to Jerusalem where he can throw down on the Romans, purge the temple, and have influence with the power structure of our world. And toddlers are not the power structure of our world. And for whatever other reasons, the disciples get on the wrong side of things and try to stop the people from bringing the children to Jesus to bless them. Well, I'm sad to say that you find this group in the church today. And I'm also sad to say that in the case of this passage, it was the leaders of the movement the leaders that were against children being brought to Christ. I'm sad to tell you that in my years of ministry experience, many church leaders have no appreciation for ministry to children. I know countless children's ministry leaders in churches who are exhausted and frustrated because the church leadership really doesn't value their ministry work. I can tell you that many churches have a children's ministry because if we don't, our church won't grow. I know many Christian leaders who think that the ministry going on right now is some kind of spiritual babysitting. I want you to be so thankful that Britt is not one of those people. And you should be thankful to have a pastor like that because this is amazing to me still. We we have work in 16 countries on 5 continents. We have basically determined as a ministry that about half of the churches in the world do have no ministry to children whatsoever in their church on Sundays or any other time. Half. That's a lot. And it's because they've been deceived Like the disciples, when I was a young leader, I you know I went to seminary and I I liked to preach and I was preaching in the church I worked in in Orange County. It was this big, huge church. And after one of the services, one of the elders came up to me and he said, "I was the children's pastor there. You're not going to believe this, Well, you will actually." He came up to me and he said, "Daniel, you like to preach. You like to you, you studied Hebrew and Greek. When are you going to get your own church and have have a real ministry?" He said that, a real ministry. I remember thinking that. I mean, it's like somebody cut you in the heart. What was I doing? You know, with, we had 2,000 kids on Sunday morning. That's real ministry, baby. Right? But that's an attitude that is prevalent among Christian leaders. All you have to go do is go look at a church's budget and see where all... I, don't, I guarantee you they're not giving 20 30% of their budget to the children's ministry. So, the disciples are on the wrong side of things, and Jesus, we'll see, is not happy about that. But before we get to that, the fourth mystery group, because it's actually not in these two, three verses. It's back earlier in the chapter, and it's actually the largest group. The people standing around doing nothing It's the large crowds, it says in Matthew 19, 1 and 2, that were following Jesus. They're not trying to bring children to Christ. They're not trying to stop children from coming to Christ. They're just standing around doing nothing. They don't believe anything's exponential. They're just kind of hanging, cruising. And I can guarantee you there's this group all over the world in every church, and they're the largest group, and they're probably, I'm sad to say, the largest group at Sunridge. The people who come, they hang out. But when it gets down to committing to a ministry to boys and girls or the youth ministry or something, you know, know, I'm just going to kind of hang. And then, because they can feel guilty when I'm talking like this, and they're also wondering when I'm going to be done, (laughs) they come up with sort of explanations for why that is. And I've actually, over the years worked to categorize the explanations for why I'm in the large crowd. So the first group is the I've been there and I've done that before group. It's the elderly couples that will tell you they were teaching Sunday school when Ronald Reagan was the governor of California. And they've been there and they've done that. So they're not involved in the children's ministry at all. Then there's the second group. These are the intellectuals. They're really smart. They're too smart to do children's ministry because they're waiting to work with people who are older and can make important decisions, the intellectuals. Then there's the third group, which I have a lot of sympathy for. They are worried about some kind of environmental protection agency incident that would involve bodily fluids and the children. So they're out. They're not getting near the children's ministry work. Then this group, this group's really one I'm still doing a lot of research on because I still haven't figured it out over 40 years. What is the story with young couples who experiment on pets before children? Have you noticed that? I I get to say, I have a son and daughter. They're kind of in this group. (laughs) I hope my son doesn't listen to this sermon. (laughs) Then there's another group of young people, maybe high school, college whatever, saying they're like so self-absorbed, so narcissistic that the thought of ministering to someone else is off the radar. Then there's the poor mothers. They're so exhausted from working all day with the kids and the family all week and they just are exhausted on Sunday mornings, that's out. And then there's the men. They are the largest group in this group and they they know what's going on. They are doing the important work in the church like greeting people, seating people, take the offering and handle the parking lot while the women do the unimportant things like teach spiritual truth to 30, 40% of the congregation. And then sadly men we have all been taught an enormous lie that our job is to bring home the bacon while our wives raise our children. And I want to assure you that this is not a biblical notion and that the Bible is very clear in places like Deuteronomy 6 that the community of faith is responsible for the spiritual well-being of your children and men are particularly Men, we are particularly responsible before God for the spiritual well-being of our own children and the children of this church. So standing, towering over the four groups is Jesus who rebukes the disciples, it says in the parallel passage in Mark, who loved children. He brought them to himself. He put his hands on them. He blessed them and he ministered to them because he loves children. And as one of my professors at Fuller Seminary, old white-haired man, brilliant scholar, church history guy, not a children's worker. He probably never taught Sunday school in his life. He's passed on to be with the Lord. Wrote an article in the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia. He's like a really famous scholar that said one of the characteristic features of Jesus' life and ministry was the importance he attached to children. Years ago, we were starting work in Chile, and I met someone that's been so influential in my life since. We were in a meeting talking about their ministry to children, trying to learn about what they were doing, and their programs, curriculum, etc., etc., and we had been there about an hour, and we ended the meeting, and just as I said, let's pray, and the translator translated, he said, I have something to say. And he hadn't said anything the whole meeting. He was sitting right across from me. There was about 30 people there. and He, had, he was an older gentleman. And I knew he was important because when he said it, everybody kind of like looked at him. And uh, he said that he worked in a church outside of Santiago. And the, uh, the church was in a really poor part of the city. And they had families in the church that lived on the garbage dump. And they would bring children to Sunday school at the church. And when the kids came to church, some of them started to cry at church. And then they had a girl actually faint in the church, and it was from malnutrition. The kids didn't, couldn't find food, and they were actually starving. So the church leaders decided you can't teach about the love of Christ when boys and girls are starving. So they started a food program in their church. The pastor of the church gave up the whole bottom part of his house. I'm not saying he should, Britt. <laughs> and he lived upstairs, and they started a program where they gave bread, milk and a little thing of soup to boys and girls that came through every day. And it grew to where they were feeding, he said, like 800 children. So he said just a few days before we were there, a boy came through the line, and he was helping out, serving. I found out later he he was the pastor of the church, and it was his house. But he made it sound like it was somebody else. Godly, man. He said a little boy came up, and he um, took a piece of bread off the plate, and wrapped it in a rag he pulled out of his pocket and put it in his own pocket. And the pastor said he looked across the table and said, you don't, you don't have to save that. You can eat it right now and come back tomorrow. And the boy said, Well, I'm not saving it for me, I'm taking it home for my mother because she hasn't eaten in five days. The guy said he just couldn't believe it. And he said he reached across the table and told the boy that you can get another piece of bread for yourself and take another one for your mother. And then he said, I reached out and put my hand on his face and told him you're a good son for caring for your mother like that. And he said when he pulled his hand away from the boy's face, the little boy grabbed his hand and put it back on his face and held it there and wouldn't let the pastor take his hand away. And the man said that in that moment... I realized that that boy was hungrier for the loving hand of a man on his face than he was a piece of bread. Jesus loves children, and he wants to put his hand, loving hand, on the face of every child in this world. And he's called us to be part of that. So what I want you to think about this morning is, which group are you going to be in? Maybe it's your day to come to Christ like the first group as a child and confess him as your Lord and Savior for the first time in your own life. Jesus says, if you want to come to me, come to me like a child. If that's the case, I'm sure Britt would love to talk to you after the service or maybe you want to be like the people bringing the children to Christ and be part of the great work that God's doing through this church in the lives of boys and girls, I pray that you wouldn't be like the disciples or those standing around doing nothing. Let me pray.
0: Hey, everybody. It's Britt again. Thanks for listening.